If you brought a Bible with you this morning, please open it up to Philippians 2. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, you are more than welcome to use one of the pew Bibles in the seat back in front of you. It's the the black hardcover book. Uh, If you do use one of those pew Bibles, our text can be found this morning on page 921. On May 31st, 2000, the TV show Survivor premiered on CBS. Sixteen individuals were transported to a remote island in Borneo and were tasked with both surviving without modern amenities as well as outlasting the other 15 competitors. At the start of the show, the 16 contestants were divided into two teams, or tribes, uh, which would compete in challenges to win rewards like food and tools to aid in their survival. Every three days of showtime or uh, once per episode, Uh, one person would be voted off the island by the other contestants. After six people had been eliminated, the teams were merged into one new tribe uh, that would then uh, compete in challenges as individuals. They would be performed and won by the individuals rather than by teams. The final contestant remaining after 15 eliminations would win the grand prize of $1 million. Suffice it to say, in its remarkable 44 seasons on television, contestants have devised a number of strategies to gain an advantage and increase their chances of winning that money. On season seven, one player infamously faked receiving news of the death of his grandmother in order to play on the sympathy of his teammates, who then let him win that day's challenge. They attempted to be kind to him, and he played it as a weakness against them. Four players back in the first season, back in 2000, introduced America to the concept of the alliance. It's a strategy that's now synonymous not just with Survivor, but with all of these competition reality shows. And those four contestants back in season one agreed not to vote one another out in order to outlast the other 12 players. And it was a strategy that worked remarkably well, and it resulted in them being the last four people on the island. But even with an alliance, the goal is to get ahead at the expense of the others. And so if that means backstabbing your allies at the opportune moment, then you do that. Though it wasn't the first reality competition series on television, Survivor really set the standard for a number of other similar shows. And the common element in each of those shows is the shocking selfishness and self-serving mindset of the competitors. Fans of such programs fully expect their favorite contestants to lie and cheat and steal and sabotage and do whatever else it takes to get over the others. They root for treachery, wanting their chosen player to win the big prize, no matter what it costs. After all, drama makes for good TV, right? I think a big part of the popularity of shows like Survivor uh, is that they are They're like a concentrated slice of real life for the worldly man or woman. After all, our culture shouts at us to look out for number one, to treat yourself, to have it your way. And that's precisely the driving force for so many who don't know Christ in a saving way. It may not be to win a million dollars, but people seem untroubled in conscience when they lie for some perceived advantage at work or at home, or among friends. People may shy away from stealing money from their work, 
but they feel perfectly justified in stealing time or office supplies. Post-its are expensive. Not really. People make gossip and share secrets that have been entrusted to them in order to improve their social standing. Survivor and other shows like it give people the chance to root for others who are simply living out the standards and the values of the age. Now, selfishness and self-aggrandizement may be the accepted or even the respected values of the world at large. But in our scripture passage this morning, Paul is going to make clear that the church's values are to be markedly different from the world. And he's going to hold up a more God-honoring standard for believers to strive for. Let's read Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. Paul writes, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. <clears throat> Excuse me. The first thing we see in our text this morning is Paul's platform for humility. Paul's platform for humility. Now, I'm not talking about platform as in Paul's political policy. He was definitely not running for office when he wrote this letter. I mean platform as in the, the level surface or the foundation upon which he's going to build his appeal for humility. Last time I was up here preaching, we looked at Philippians 1, 27 through 30, uh, where Paul urged the church at Philippi to be united, standing firm in the Holy Spirit and with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Since there were no chapter breaks in the original autographs of the books that make up the Bible, Philippians 2 is really just a continuation of Philippians 1. That's why chapter 2, verse 1 starts with, so which could just as easily and accurately be translated, therefore. Paul's not moving on to a new topic at the start of chapter 2. He's continuing his exhortation for unity by building on what he's just said. And the way he continues that exhortation is to make a complex sort of conditional statement that's made up of four if clauses and one conclusion, or then statement. Now, to be fair, Paul only uses the word if one time in the ESV, with it being implied in front of the other three clauses. Other translations do make it more explicit by including the if in front of each of those four clauses. Paul is literally saying, if each of these four things are true, then do this. But he's not making the statement in the way that we might think of a conditional statement. For instance, I might tell Nate, my oldest son, if you're hungry, then eat an apple. This implies that I don't know whether Nate is hungry or not. He may or may not be. I'm just giving him the instruction to eat an apple in case he actually is hungry. If he's not, then nothing happens. Conditional statements are very common in computer programming as well. If you looked at the code behind a piece of software, you might see instructions to the effect of, if the Y key is pressed, then spell out the word yes on the screen. There's nothing in that instruction that assumes that the Y key must be pressed. It's suppositional 
not presuppositional. But that's not what Paul's doing here in Philippians 2. He's not saying that Christians in Philippi may or may not have experienced those facets of the faith that he lists. Rather, he's assuming that each of his if statements is absolutely true and applicable to the Philippian believers. It might be more helpful for us to read verses 1 and 2 like this. So since there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now those first three if clauses might sound a little bit familiar to you if you've spent much time studying 2 Corinthians. Listen to Paul's benediction at the end of 2 Corinthians 13. He says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now Paul includes each person of the Trinity there, beginning with Jesus, then moving to the Father, then concluding with the Holy Spirit. It's a very similar structure to those first three if clauses in Philippians 2. And I don't believe that that's a coincidence. I think Paul is deliberately referencing all three persons of the Godhead as he urges the Philippian brothers and sisters to stand united in the gospel. After all, all three persons played a role in the redemptive plan that has saved the Philippians and made them a church that should be united. Now there's debate among scholars as to the meaning of the second clause. Whose love is doing the comforting? Is it Paul's love for the Philippians? Is it the Philippians' love for Paul? Is it Jesus' love for all of them? No, Paul doesn't explicitly name the Father in the second clause. I think the similarity to that benediction in 2 Corinthians allows us to infer that it's the Father's love that should comfort them and us, especially since it's the Father's love that Paul invokes in his Corinthian benediction. Let's take a brief look at each of these aspects of the Christian's relationship to God that are listed in these first three if statements since they're still relevant to us today. First, Paul says, if there is any encouragement in Christ. It's important for us to remember context as we think about the meaning of this clause. Philippians 1 has just ended with Paul saying this, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. You may remember from the last time I preached that the Philippians were undergoing persecution, at least in part because they were considered traitors for not offering worship to the emperor. Philippi was a Roman colony, so the residents had a deep sense of loyalty and reverence for Caesar that actually culminated in their worshiping him as a god. There was an imperial cult. The believers in Philippi, meanwhile, had a new lord who commanded their devotion. And that left a bad taste in the mouths of their neighbors, who then lashed out at them. So the Philippian Christians were suffering for Jesus, just as they had seen Paul suffer while he was evangelizing in Philippi in Acts 16. And as he was still suffering, having sent them this letter from prison in Rome. Now, when people go through suffering in general, we tend to expect them to maybe get resentful of others who aren't experiencing the suffering that they're experiencing. And we may even expect that resentment to blossom into the sort of full-on bitterness that actively drives people away from them. 
Left to our own strength, that's a trap any of us could fall into when we suffer. But Paul is saying here in Philippians 2.1 that the suffering Philippians should have encouragement in their Savior. They're not to be broken down by what they're going through, but rather they should be motivated by the joy found in their restored relationship with the Christ who died in their stead. Jesus promised he would be with believers to the end of the age. Christianity isn't a religion centered on knowing certain facts or performing certain acts for our salvation. Instead, the core of Christianity is about being made right with the God who created us to be in relationship with him. Because of that, the Philippians should, like the apostles in Acts 5, rejoice that they've been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Paul says in Romans, 6, uh, I'm sorry, Romans 8, 16 through 17, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The Philippians definitely were suffering with Christ, so they could be encouraged that they would likewise be glorified as heirs of God and co-heirs with Jesus. And honestly, what greater encouragement could there be than that? In Paul's second clause, he says, if any comfort from love... This is, again, the love of the Father in heaven. I think when we consider God's love, we tend to focus on Jesus, who went through the agony of the cross for us because he loved us. We aren't as prone to think of the love of the Father, maybe because of the, the pouring out of his wrath throughout the Old Testament. I know that was the, the case for me early on in my Christian walk. I struggled to reconcile the idea of a loving God with the God that I saw in the Old Testament, bringing plagues on Egypt and driving out the nations from the promised land and striking the Israelites when they strayed from him. But it was the Father who, in love, purposed that Christ would bear his wrath on the cross in our place so that we would be reconciled to him. And it was out of love for his chosen people that he sent the plagues on Egypt, that the Israelites might go free and enter the land he had prepared for them. And God wasn't just picking on the innocent inhabitants of Canaan when he sent the Israelites to drive them out. In fact, he tells the Israelites very plainly in Deuteronomy 9 that he's sending them to drive out the Canaanites as a punishment because the Canaanites were unrepentantly wicked. God is relational, and the Canaanites had no interest in a relationship with him because they were happy performing their detestable practices in worship to their idols. And because God is relational, it was when his chosen people turned from him and refused to walk with him that he struck them solely in order to bring them back. Keep in mind also that the members of the Godhead are in perfect unity. It's not like the Father is the stern one and Jesus is the loving one. God is love, John tells us. And that truth applies to Father and Son and Spirit. The Father's love is plain all throughout Scripture, both Old and New Testaments, if you're looking for it. So it's the Father's love that should comfort the Philippians. Listen to 1 John 4, 7 through 10. John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, 
Because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. By God's amazing grace, through faith in the risen Christ, we are not just reconciled to God, but we are adopted as sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. We get a new status and a new family. We don't have to run ourselves ragged on the treadmill of legalism, constantly afraid that if we step out of line, God is going to cut us off. When my kids misbehave, I don't stop loving them and I don't kick them out of the family. I'm their father, and nothing will ever change that. I will love them forever. How much more perfect is the fatherhood of God? What a comfort God's love should be, not just to the Philippians, but to all of us. Next, Paul says, if there is any participation in the Spirit. Scripture makes clear that every believer is given the Holy Spirit at conversion, who indwells us and serves as our helper and our teacher and our intercessor and the guarantee of our inheritance. The Holy Spirit gives each believer's gifts with which to serve the body of Christ, according to Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, as well as other passages. The Spirit's presence in our lives can be seen in the qualities that he produces in us. <clears throat> Excuse me. Per Galatians 5, he gives us Love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. A very familiar list. And all of those fruits should be evident in our lives if we belong to Christ. Now, we don't all have all of those fruits in equal measure. But we should all be growing to some degree as we grow in Christ-likeness. Those fruits should be growing in us and increasing in us. Jesus even promised the apostles in Luke 12 that when they stood on trial before synagogues and rulers and authorities, the Holy Spirit would teach them what to say. He also assured them that the Spirit would bring to their remembrance what they had heard Jesus say. And even before we become believers in Christ, it's the Holy Spirit that regenerates us giving us hearts of flesh and making it possible for us to embrace Jesus in faith and repentance. The Holy Spirit, then, is a very active part of all aspects of the Christian's life. Certainly, he was at work among the Philippians. Those are the, the three if clauses with which Paul calls to mind the Godhead. But he adds one more clause. He says, if there is any affection and sympathy... Again, he has every reason to assume that each of these clauses is true. This one no less than the first three. Paul knows the Philippians have affection and sympathy for him because they sent a financial gift to him along with Epaphroditus, who was meant to stay with Paul and assist him in any way that he possibly could. Now, we know that Epaphroditus got very sick and ended up getting sent back early, but the intent was there to help Paul in his imprisonment. The Philippians didn't distance themselves from Paul because he got himself arrested, and they didn't want to sully their reputation by associating with a felon. Instead, they went out of their way to help him in his imprisonment. 
Paul had, after all, founded their church. We can assume that at this point in time, every single believer in Philippi had either come to faith through Paul's evangelization or had come to faith through someone who had come to faith through Paul's evangelization. Back in Philippians 1.5, Paul says he thanks God for the Philippians' partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Unlike the church in Galatia that Paul had very little good to say about, this is a church that's for the most part getting things right. Paul has much to say in praise of them. It's obvious he has much affection for them just as they do for him. After I got my driver's license and my mom wanted me to run to the store for her so she didn't have to go, she would seemingly spontaneously just ask me, do you love me? Then when I invariably said yes, she would ask me to run to the store for her. She couched her request in my love for her so that it would motivate me to agree to drop whatever I was doing and get in the car. And that's sort of what Paul is doing here in his fourth if statement. He's invoking their love for him as he prepares to make his request. So he says to them, if these four conditions are true for you, and I know that they are, then complete my joy. It's a strain on Paul's joy to know that there's division forming in this beloved church. He has deep concern for them, so he wants that growing rift among them to heal and for the body at Philippi to stand as one. In fact, notice in Philippians 2.2 2, that he repeats two words two times. He says, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Keep in mind, this is a continuation of his call for unity that he began back at the end of Philippians 1. By way of reminder, in Philippians 1.27, he said, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in the one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. It was only in their unity in the one spirit and striving with one mind that they would live worthy of the gospel. It wasn't enough for Paul that each man and woman and child who had faith in Christ was individually right with God and shared the good news with their neighbors, all while harboring resentment or enmity toward one another. For their lives to be gospel worthy, they needed to be united and to strive as one. And here in Philippians 2, he continues to stress that unity. Have the same mind. Have the same love. And that sounds really good to us. Who wouldn't affirm that this is a good goal to strive for? Unity is good. But how precisely do we do this? How were the Philippians meant to do this? How were they meant to achieve that oneness of love that adorns the gospel message? We get our answer to that question in point two, which is Paul's petition for humility. Paul's petition for humility. Look again at Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is how you achieve that precious unity, that sameness of affection and mind and love. Look out for number one is certainly the battle cry of postmodern America, but it's not unique to us in history. 
the Romans saw ambition and self-aggrandizement as strengths. And accordingly, they considered humility a weakness. It was a quality only for the lowest of the low. Slaves were considered humble, but to call anyone else humble was an insult to them. But Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, judo flips that mindset on its head. He tells the Philippian church to do nothing from selfish ambition. We've actually already seen that phrase, selfish ambition, in this letter. In Philippians 1, 15-17, Paul says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Notice there that the ones preaching Christ out of selfish ambition are contrasted as the opposites of the ones who preach out of love. Paul may explain that these two motives are polar opposites. Selfish ambition is looking out for number one, specifically at the expense of others. Just like on Survivor, doing what it takes to get ahead invariably means raising yourself up by pushing someone else down. It's a self-centered mindset that has no room for compassion or empathy. It's seeking glory and seeing others simply as objects to be used for our own advancement, as necks to be stepped on as we climb our way to the top. That's what that second group of gospel preachers was doing in Rome. They were hurting Paul in order to elevate themselves. They were making his gospel look wrong or weak his ministry looking ineffective and, and poor, so that theirs looked better. And that's precisely what Paul is commanding the Philippian believers not to do. There's some unspecified threat to their unity as a church that Paul has been made aware of. So he urges them not to have that fallen mindset that fosters that selfish ambition. He also tells them to do nothing from conceit. This is simply thinking too highly of oneself. It's a term used in other Greco-Roman literature of the time to describe a person whose high opinion of themselves has no basis in reality. Someone whose pride is disproportionate to the level of their skill or status. Remember, self-interest and ambition were considered virtues in the Roman world. But they were virtues only for someone who could actually back up their claim to greatness. If your opinion of yourself didn't match up with others' view of you, then you were considered conceited. I knew a man once who constantly felt a need to tell people what sort of guy he was. And he wasn't subtle about it. He would literally start sentences with, I'm the kind of guy who. And those sentences never ended with something negative. Like he never said, I'm the kind of guy who punches kittens every chance he gets. His statements were always meant to make him look better in his listener's eyes. He obviously thought very highly of himself, even regardless of the negative opinion that his constant self-promotion fostered in his hearers. That's the kind of conceit that Paul is warning against here. We see this word used elsewhere in Paul at the end of Galatians 5. In verses 19 through 21, he lists the works of the flesh, which include enmity and strife, and jealousy, and fits of anger, and rivalries, and dissensions, and divisions, and envy. 
And then, by contrast, he lists those fruits of the Spirit that we mentioned prior. And then he finishes out chapter 5 by saying this, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. When we're conceited, we think too highly of ourselves. And that naturally translates into thinking lower of others. It produces the works of the flesh that Paul warns against here in Galatians 5. When we feel superior to others, then naturally rivalries and divisions and envy and jealousy form. After all, who is our brother to have something that we don't have? Or to enjoy a success that we don't enjoy? Or to hold some status equal to or even greater than the status we hold? At that point, those people are rivals to us. Not in a healthy, athletics way that drives both of us to perform better, but in a worldly, sinful way that makes us want to see them suffer and fall. And so selfish ambition and conceit go hand in hand as tools that Satan uses to puff us up and drive a spike right down the middle of our unity as Christians. Paul says, don't be that person. Don't do things from those sinful, self-serving motives, but rather in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Now, when he says that, when he says to count others more significant, he's not calling the Philippians to self-loathing or obsequiousness. He's not saying each Philippian believer should despise himself or herself in order to elevate others in their own estimation. And we know that that's not the case because of what he says in verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. He doesn't say, forget about your own interests, they don't matter. Rather, he says, look to your interests, but also look to the interests of others. It's having a true regard for the brethren born of love, both the grateful love that we have for God who saves us, as well as the godly love for our neighbor to which we've been called by our loving Heavenly Father. We may not always have much in common with a brother or sister. We may not approve of all of their decisions or their points of view on things, but they are still our brother or sister in Christ, and we are called to love them regardless. That doesn't mean we put on a show and pretend to be their biggest fan, or we try to force ourselves to feel artificial feelings of affection for them. What it does mean very plainly is that we choose to love them by doing precisely what Paul is pleading for here. We have a realistic view of both them and ourselves as sinners saved by God's grace. We acknowledge that our Savior suffered and died for them, just like he did for us, and that our salvation cost not one drop less of divine blood than theirs did. And that love that we have for them expresses itself in seeking their good, in looking to their interests as well as our own, no matter how affectionate we may feel toward them. Because the love that we're called to in Christ isn't a feeling that waxes and wanes with our emotional state but it's an act of the will that drives us to seek their good regardless of our emotions at any given moment. We use our time and our talents and our resources not to pursue our benefit only, but those of other believers as well. That's the plea and the petition that Paul is making here in Philippians 2. He loves the family of faith in Philippi, and he's deeply concerned for their unity based on some report he's gotten 
possibly from Epaphroditus. We don't know if the division in the church is centered on the disagreement between Euodia and Syntyche that Paul mentions in Philippians 4, or if that's just a symptom of the bigger problem. But Paul clearly believes the underlying cause of this disunity that he's heard about is at least some of the Philippians have succumbed to the attitude of the world around them, looking out for number one in a spirit of selfishness and self-aggrandizement at the expense of others in the church. Now, that's not to say that their actions or attitude would have been obviously sinful. They may have been selfishly pursuing recognition as deeply spiritual and godly people. That's precisely what Jesus called the Pharisees out for in Matthew 23. Matthew 23 tells us, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisees wanted fame and acclaim as godly men, but they weren't really interested in actually being godly. They did all their deeds to be seen by men, but those deeds definitely didn't include the kind of love and humility that Paul is urging the Philippians to pursue. The Pharisees wanted to be called rabbi and father and teacher, again, to secure their renown as ultra-pious. They wore big phylacteries and long fringes because those things were considered a way to show your holiness. But Jesus said, don't do that. Don't try to gain the spiritual upper hand on each other. You're all brothers. You're all on equal footing in me. Do you want to be great? Then be a servant. Do you want to be exalted? Then humble yourself. In God's economy, the only way to truly look out for number one is to look out for everyone else instead. Doing so is not just good for us, it's good for the church. And when the church is unified in the encouragement of the Son, the love of the Father, and participation in the Spirit, the gospel is adorned, and we're able to strive to share the good news of Jesus Christ with the world around us. Now, in the next several verses of Philippians 2, Paul famously holds up Jesus as the ultimate example of humility to the believers at Philippi. And you may be wondering why we're not talking about it today, since this sermon has been all about humility. Honestly, that passage of Philippians 2 is probably Paul's highest Christological passage, and it has some really great things to say, so I want to give it its own sermon, rather than just have it serve as the third point of this sermon. So when I preach again in a couple months, that's the text I'll be expositing. So I guess consider today part one and stand by for part two. In the meantime, let's pray. Oh, Father, give us this humility, this humble mindset, God, that flies in the face of the world's values. 
and attitudes. God, that we would adorn the gospel, that the world would see in this church, in the church of Christ, a difference in how we live, how we treat one another, how we consider ourselves. That it would lead to opportunities, God, to share the reason for the hope that we have within us in Jesus. It's in his name, O oh God, that we pray. Amen. Please stand now and sing with us our song of response, All I Have is Christ.